0: Love, talk, radio. Welcome. Today our topic is building diversity and inclusion success for your law firm. Joining us is Liz Mikos, a diversity strategist with Nesso Strategies. She brings her background as a competitive athlete and a Ph.D. candidate to partner with clients. Liz helps them build innovative, inclusive teams and implement targeted diversity and inclusion initiatives. Well, welcome, Liz.
1: Thank you so much, Julie. I'm so happy to be here today.
0: Great to have you. So we are going to focus specifically as diversity and inclusion uh, impacts the law firm. So let's get started. What is diversity and what is inclusion, and how do these work together to make up D&I for the law firm?
1: So uh, D and I are often lumped together, you know, hence the acronym D and I, uh, but mm-hmm. there's so much information and so many variations packed into that short, little abbreviation. So if you take the D, diversity, I mean, simply put, it means difference. And it refers to the acknowledgement of the simple social fact that there are different kinds of people all over the face of the planet, and Mm -hmm. they can be different by any number of social categories or measures. I mean, we have gender identity, race and ethnicity, age, sexuality, I mean, the list goes on and on. Now, diversity is also relative. It depends on your scope, which can be global, national, local, within a profession, or for our conversation here today, within a particular firm. So what difference means depends on what you're looking at. Now, inclusion is more of the, quote-unquote, meat and potatoes of diversity. <laughs> it's about finding an answer to the question, okay, so we see and we acknowledge this diversity, this difference now, what are we, in fact, going to do about it? How do we want this difference, or all of these differences we see, to work together. What's that final product going to be? That's inclusion, and uh, there is unfortunately no one simple answer. Um, there is an entire spectrum. There's, I mean, on on one end of the spectrum, we have um, the celebration of difference through the quote unquote safe consumption of products like fashion and food. So it's sort of like saying, hey, let's go get Indian food for lunch today and you can like pat yourself on the back. Um, they call that boutique multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. It's thought of being a little bit more of a superficial celebration of difference. And then on the other hand, or excuse me, on the other end of the spectrum, there's a much more systematic analysis and entire overhaul of a culture and policies. And then, of course, there's anything and everything in between. So there's an awful lot, an awful lot shoved into those two, two simple little words.
0: So recently, we've heard a lot about it. Why is it becoming such a hot topic? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, um, I'm actually a a historian by training. So I know, anything (laughs) as a recent phenomenon, Um, I think we're actually 60 years into a global paradigm shift that Mm -hmm. first gained momentum at the end of World War II. So coming out of that historical moment, you see an increased acknowledgement and respect of difference. like You can see that in the establishment of the United Nations and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is a document that is still extremely relevant today. Uh, We saw decolonization on a global scale. Here in the United States, there was the African American Civil Rights Movement, which then proliferated um, to other social groups. And then we also had enormous changes in our immigration policies that has created the demographic reality that we currently live in today. So there's been this huge value shift that has been creating more and more policies as it's progressed decade by decade. And now for law firms, I mean, this has all had an enormous impact on our economy. It impacts Mm -hmm. how we do business who consumers and clients are, various forms of regulations as well as reporting, as well as corporate values um, that clients are now pushing on to their outside firms that they work with.
0: Well, it's a difficult topic to talk about, and it's a complex topic to talk about.
1: How can mm-hmm. business and
0: law leaders successfully approach it? So uh, the
1: conversation is difficult because of how it came about. So coming out of the civil rights era, you have the creation of political groups and political platforms based on this amalgamation or joining of a social group's lived experiences. So uh, from this trajectory, we have the personal becoming political, and it still is extremely political. So basically, we have people's daily lives, their experiences. Um, you know, their their experiences shape the changes they want to see in the world around them. So this topic, by its very design, fits extremely close to home for everyone, which makes it a a little bit of a difficult conversation to navigate. Mm-hmm. To successfully have this conversation, um, you need respect and patience. So uh, there's no there's no easy way around it. Um, and uh, in order to tackle the difficulties that we face today in the profession as well as the nation overall, um, you have to you have to go into the conversation thinking, okay, there's no other way to do this, but we just need to dive in, but we need to do it with patience and respect.
0: Yeah, respecting patience, good things to know. Mm-hmm. And why should yeah. law firms and the business of the law care about diversity?
1: So demographically, Attorneys, clients, and jurors now come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, Businesses also seek a means to push their corporate diversity and inclusion values onto their suppliers, and so they want outside firms to be able to speak to their diversity and inclusion efforts, uh, as well as report on who's working on their matters, uh, specifically either by an annual basis, or some firms even require quarterly reports of who's how many hours on their, on their matters. Um, you're also dealing with a different kind of public, uh, one that is quickly disgusted even by a whiff of discrimination. And mm-hmm. we're living in an age where just about anything can go viral, so firms have to be very cautious of all of their actions as well as their clients because everybody's reputation um, can be shot dead <laughs> very quickly Absolutely. on the internet very uh-huh. mm-hmm. and now firms also have to yet. oh I'm sorry just one more point I firms would, also have to consider sure. their pocketbook um, everybody's looking for ways to retain all of their talent and investment um, and mm-hmm. firms also don't want to lose a client because that client has encouraged them to become more diverse and they haven't successfully managed to do so in the time allotted
0: good point Now, what are some common areas of D&I concern for law firms of, well, any size? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I think a lot of firms get wrapped up in diversity, so the idea of having difference instead of inclusion, what you do or how you do handle that difference. So firms are very concerned about recruiting diverse talent, only to find out that they don't have the right kind of inclusive culture in place, so uh-huh. that talent turns around and walks right out the door. Right. So in effect, they're putting the cart before the horse, and that's the that's a problem I see
0: in um, most, if not every, firm. So <laughs> has with. a lot to do about culture. I mean, you have to have the culture first. Very, I mean,
1: very much so. Completely agree. Um, I think another area where firms struggle is taking their D&I strategy across their threshold. I think firms are really comfortable with more outward-facing strategies, so the idea of like having a diversity statement up on your website, integrating diversity into your various forms of corporate social responsibility by sponsoring students, and hosting and attending diversity events. But firms are markedly less enthusiastic about self-examination, so... Sort of holding that mirror up and taking... I was going to say, holding that look. mirror up. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. So looking at their numbers, considering differentials um, in Ascension as well as compensation, looking at who gets to work on which client matters, um, or even something as simple as asking your people for feedback.
0: Excellent. Well, what can law firms do to start or even expand their D&I strategy?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, to build on my my previous response, I think firms can take a good long look in the mirror and start having a conversation. So people are subjective. We have an extraordinary capacity to see what we want to see. So you need to counter that tendency with some objective data. So I always recommend that firms start by looking at their diversity metrics. And by by diversity metrics, I mean to look at different categories of difference at all levels of your firm, as well as in work assignments, in attrition, and compensation. So when you're looking at data like that in black and white there on the page in front of you, it can be much clearer, much easier to identify where your trouble spots are. Um, Mm -hmm. Second. I recommend that firms have focus group discussions and ask for feedback and recommendations from your people. So uh, think of this as a group stay interview as opposed to an exit interview. Ask your people what do they want to see change within the firm. What's going to make them stay? What experiences have they had exactly? What would make them happier? Because you're trying to get at that elusive it's so hard to define, you know, to get a grasp on firm culture and to say, like, okay, where are our cultural weak spots? What do, like, what are people telling us? How do we fix this? How do they want us to fix this? And from there, you start building initiatives and strategies.
0: Excellent. Well, we hear about unconscious bias and microaggressions. Now, how can you combat them?
1: So, unconscious bias and microaggressions are the subtle ways in which we all reinforce difference today. So, unconscious bias is basically think of it as like your lizard brain, <laughs> you know, that biological <laughs> part of you that just wants to subdivide a population um, whenever faced in a competition for resources. So. It's our natural tendency to show preference for those individuals who look like us, think like us, and like what we like. I mean, we identify it's them as being on today. our... Exactly, exactly. And so we identify them as like being on our team, and we want our team to win. So we do little things that we may not even be conscious of to right. help them out. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this has a really deep-seated cognitive impact, so it affects the way that we think in the way that we process information, Uh, how we evaluate data, how we remember events occurring, and how much information we need to convince ourselves of something that we may or may not agree with. So that's unconscious bias. Um, And now microaggressions are the behavioral counterpoint of unconscious bias. These are the daily brief uh, and common actions that can unknowingly communicate um, a negative slight or an insult. And the aggressor can have good intentions and they can be completely unaware, um, but they still cause the recipient psychological distress. So as an exercise... Like reading the
0: wrong signals or something? Like reading the wrong kind of communication signals, body language, that kind of thing?
1: Exactly, exactly. I body mean. language is the perfect example of microaggression. Right. So, I mean, as an exercise, like, Sort of keep this in the back of your mind as you go through your day you know think about who you look in the eye versus who you don't and what do you think that communicates okay? ah. conversely think about who you sit down next to in a public place you know and you can see unconscious bias and you can see microaggressions they're active in your own life okay so the way to combat these items is just to do little exercises like that to raise awareness so that you can sort of get over that mental lizard brain, you know, barrier that we have so very carefully through our biology, you know, reinforced Mm -hmm. over millennia um, to really try to combat that natural tendency to act in those certain ways. That
0: that is really interesting because we're all Mm -hmm. part of that. Um, What about diversity fatigue? We hear about that. What is it and how can you counter that?
1: So uh, diversity fatigue is that burnt-out feeling that you get when you don't see change happen overnight. <laughs> you know, we all want immediate gratification, and uh, when it comes to D&I, um, it can be a long time coming. <laughs> so yeah. diversity fatigue, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's that disappointment or frustration that you can feel, when, even within perhaps even a year's time, you don't see the results that you want. Um, it's that disappointment... That you feel when you lose an associate that you worked so hard to recruit. This is where the patience comes
0: in. Yeah,
1: you're talking about patience
0: earlier. This is where the patience comes in in full force. I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly,
1: Cur- Yes, you read my mind. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, um,
1: so you counter diversity fatigue with an accurate perspective. You know, you have to recognize that change isn't going to happen overnight, and the strategies you're putting in place now aren't really going to pay off until five years down the road, ten years down the road. Now, in the article that I have forthcoming, uh, Laura Niebling from Perkins Coie shared utterly fantastic phrase with me that she, that she also overheard. It's something called relentless incrementalism. Um, and I think there's just something so fantastic about the ways <laughs> those two words are conjoined because it sums up perfectly how to deal with diversity fatigue, you know, you have to acknowledge the fact that progress is going to happen incrementally. It's going to take a very long time, but you can't let that fatigue creep in. You have to keep that relentless mentality because if you want your firm to be around in 100 years, you know, D&I is something that you need to start addressing today.
0: Yeah. You know, many ALA members manage smaller firms. Do you have specific strategies that would work for them? Mm-hmm. So from
1: many of the conversations that I've had thus far, small firms seem to especially think that they can't have a D&I program because of their size. They they tend to think of diversity more so than other firms, as specifically recruiting. And because of their small size, they don't bring people in that often. Um, Conversely, some small firms think of diversity or diversity and inclusion um, as sensitivity training. Uh, So they find the idea of a D&I program um, as something perhaps a little offensive, actually, to their office culture. Um, so where small firms may struggle with the diversity element of D&I, they can most certainly excel at inclusion. I mean, they can get involved in their communities as well as build stronger forms of inclusion within the firm itself.
0: Excellent. Now, from a client's perspective, now when clients ask about your law firm's D&I strategy or policy, how should you respond? Be prepared.
1: <laughs> you know more, Wise more and more. Yes, anticipate, anticipate that question. <laughs> mm-hmm. Have marketing materials at the ready. Uh, I mean, more and more clients are showing up at law firms saying, "Hey, we want you to handle this matter, but before we give it to you, we want your data." Um, so uh, start collecting data. And you're your data seeing that in
0: proposal, and you're seeing that in RFPs as well in the proposal process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, absolutely. very
1: much so, and so you don't want to be running around like a chicken with your head cut off trying to get that data, um, you know, by end of business or by whatever deadline for that RFP or for that client. So you know, go back and clean up your numbers um, and think, okay, I will be asked about this. This is something that I need to spend, you know, two weeks a month cleaning up. Um, so you have that data at the ready. And then also be prepared to talk about the number of ways in which your D&I strategy shows up throughout your firm. So be prepared to talk about corporate social responsibility. Be prepared to share the feedback that you've received from firm members in those group stay interviews. You know, and that also shows engagement in D&I throughout the firm, not just at the top management level. Um, you could say like, well, we had a great idea from an associate, and then you're actually showing inclusion at work within the firm itself. You know, it's not just top down; it's also it's also bottom up. Um, and then also be prepared to share things that you've got in the pipeline. You know, if something's on your wish list, you know, yes, we really wish we could do this if we had the time. Like, you know, share it and just feel like we're currently searching for a way in which to integrate this into our policy, and we're hopeful that by year's end. You know we'll be able to do X, Y, and Z. Um, so show clients that you know you have taken steps, and you will continue to expand upon what you've already built, and
0: they'll likely be happy. Great. Well, that brings us to the end of our podcast. Thanks to our guest, Liz Mikos, for your expertise on diversity and inclusion success in law firms. Liz will be a featured author on this very subject in the July issue of ALA's Legal Management Magazine. And look for Liz as a speaker this fall at ALA's ALA's Business of Law Conferences, coming to a city near you. Visit the ALA website, allanet.org for more information. And thanks, everyone, for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.